0: Next Generation Innovators is recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and we pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Hello, I'm Brooke Boney, your host for Next Generation Innovators, a future women podcast in partnership with the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources Entrepreneurs Programme. Each week we tap into the stories behind some of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs and how they've scaled their ideas into global businesses. So whether you're in business, you own one, or you dream of doing it yourself, these conversations will guide you through the ups and downs of startups from ideation and development to investment and scale. I'm joined again today by my co-host Alicia Stevenson, Chief Commercial Officer at Future Women. Hi, Brooke. How's it going? In this episode, we are speaking to Michelle Gallagher, CEO of Opal, a new generation company that provides leading biopharma and health organisations access to emerging AI-assisted technologies and professional guidance to understand and improve healthcare design, development and delivery. Michelle, in very basic terms, Opal uses artificial intelligence to analyse and understand content that people share publicly to social media. When did you first identify this as an opportunity for healthcare?
1: It was some time ago when I was Chief Executive of the Biotech Industry Association in Victoria and we had made a strategic decision to use social media to amplify the amazing medical research that was being done in our country and to make sure that that research and the small companies in the biotech sector were being seen on the world stage. But as we were doing that, I recognised that a lot of people were sharing quite important information about their health status, but also the questions they were asking about their health to social media. And I thought, amazing, what if we could tap into that? So this was public information. What if we could tap into that? And then I also wondered, do we have an obligation to listen? Because if people are prepared to share, surely we have an obligation to listen to their real lived experience with disease and injury and disorder. So that's where the idea sparked.
2: Isn't that amazing how people are just so open on social media, considering, Michelle, that artificial intelligence is a term that has been talked about a lot in the past decade, but it just still seems to be a bit of a poorly understood concept. There's lots of definitions. It makes people nervous. You know, you get the doomsday scenarios where robots <laughs> take over the world, you know, all those sorts of things. How, do you, how would you explain AI and how is it used at Opal? I'm a really
1: simple woman, so this is how I understand (laughs) it. So you've got to remember I came from a healthcare background, so I'm an allied health clinician. So I've sort of come to this probably later in life. Artificial intelligence is like drinking out of a fire hose And knowing how to drink it without getting water all over yourself. And so we talk about concepts like machine learning and natural language processing. But really what these concepts are is what we do with our brain and our eyes every single day. And that is we look at information on the table in front of us and we naturally try and group it into groups. And then we try and understand what the patterns are. And then we try and understand what the relationships are. And then we try and guess what's going to happen next. So we all naturally do that. So all this is doing is putting a computer in the place of what we naturally do in our brain. So when we talk about training an algorithm, It's like that process that we learn as kids with, you know, whether it's Lego or whether it's cakes or coins or whatever. We remember you used to do that with your coin jar. You used to put the five-cent pieces together and the two-cent pieces together, and then you'd go, that looks like a pile of about $20. That's kind of the principle of artificial intelligence. It's trying to make patterns and make sense of those patterns but the great thing about computers is we can do it with the most incredible quantity of data that a human could just never possibly drink from that fire hose.
0: So can you talk us through what the benefits are of this kind of technology for your clients, but also for the individual as well?
1: So Opal's working at the intersection of three important spaces. One is social media and how people share really important information to social media. We work with clinical trials as well. So we're trying to optimise and improve clinical trials, which is the process that all new drugs and therapies go through. And we're using artificial intelligence to do that. So I say that we work at the intersection of those three things. So the big problems we're trying to solve is we're trying to make clinical trials more efficient, and we're trying to make sure patients get matched up to clinical trials and so we're using artificial intelligence to do that to sort of make those matches together so there's a couple of things we need to be really mindful of in this space is that artificial intelligence makes those leaps they see something and go then that probably means that so we use this language of probability and recall and specificity but we have to be careful that it's like kids if you train kids to have the wrong assumptions they make all the wrong decisions and it's the same with artificial intelligence so we have to be really mindful in this space that we're training the algorithms properly artificial intelligence is only as good as the data that you put in the tube and we also have to be mindful that we have to do this with a privacy by design attitude People's data on social media is very, very valuable and it says things about people that sometimes they don't realise it's revealing. So ethics plays a big role in the design of our technology and the way our technology is being implemented.
2: Just so I can break it down so that I understand, AI is used in place of humans to make those leaps, to make those assumptions and to make those decisions where the data set is exponentially larger. Perfect. Correct. Yeah. All right. Hey, you got it. Hey, you get it. easy. All right,
1: you're that's on, it. You're on, the, you're on the AI bandwagon now.
0: I've heard that patients share more about their health experiences to social networks and, and digital platforms than they do to their own doctor. What sort of information do people share digitally? And why would they prefer that instead of going to a professional?
1: It's funny, you know, so when social media sort of really started to take off, and this was probably what, about 2008, 2009, it's actually a really long time ago now, this was an observation that I made. So I um, suffered endometriosis for years and years, and I joined a Facebook group around endometriosis. So this was other women in Australia. And I was sharing some of my story into this group in the hope that it helps somebody else. And then, of course, I've got a cousin who's a type 1 diabetic and then my mother-in-law got breast cancer. And then suddenly all these opportunities started to arise on Facebook where we had patients helping other patients and patients know their story really well. And there's really pragmatic and wonderful advice that comes from other patients. So I was respectfully just sitting, listening to these conversations, thinking, This is untapped in medicine that we often look at hard, cold, objective facts. So this is MRIs or scans or it's pathology or it's, you know, whatever. But how often do we actually hear the patient's voice in the design of new therapies? And how often do we really even give patients the opportunity to help other patients? And so social media, for all of its evils, has opened up this wonderful dialogue in which patients can be involved with other patients, but also now because of the internet and Dr. Google and Facebook and everything else, patients are doing their own research. And this is a really wonderful thing. So as an old healthcare provider myself, I really love the idea that patients are becoming empowered and educated and also contributing isn't that what we want? I think that's a much better space around health and wellness than what we've had in the past.
2: Michelle, I think it's interesting because you and I have known each other for quite some time, going back maybe five or six years, and this question of data collection, the conversations that we have around social media and around privacy and things like that, is always really fascinating with you. And you know that I have a background in generational dynamics, so I'm always really looking at everything through these different kind of lenses. I wanted to know from you... We know that Gen Z, we know that millennials, we know that these groups are much, much more comfortable sharing their data and having their private data made available as long as it's explained to them and as long as they consent. There's not that fearful barrier. As we see people becoming more and more willing to share their information, do you see that it's going to become easier as we progress to gather that data and to break down those barriers of collection and AI I think it's going to get harder before it gets easier.
1: And I think this is a good pain. It's a productive pain that we've got to have. So, what I hope is that people are now starting to awaken to the fact that their data is valuable. So, this is not just on social media. This is your Fitbit data. This is your Apple Watch. I've got one of these things, I'm addicted to it. All of this is incredibly valuable. And if this data about our health falls into the wrong hands, there can be assumptions made by artificial intelligence that just aren't true or are discriminatory or can be quite risky for those particularly, say, women who may be at some disadvantage or or in some sort of insecure sort of space. So we need to be really mindful of that. So what I want is for the whole world to wake up to the fact that these companies are making money off our data and that we have the right to commercialize our own data. We have the right to be forgotten. We have the right to be invisible and we have the right to contribute. So when we start having these conversations around data agency, data ownership and data sovereignty, then I think we're gonna move into a really good space. So after that, I really wanna be able to ensure that the medical technology industry, particularly working in digital health, has the opportunity to access people's data with consent. So right now we're accessing public data on social media, and that is people don't have their privacy filters on and they know that anybody can see it and access it. I think it's important to see this and access it with respect. So we always de-identify our data whenever we pick it up from social media. But also it's these big technology companies that have a monopoly around this I don't think that's exactly right in the future. So I think what we'll see in the future is various technologies that allow people to control their own data, even if it's Facebook. And Mm. I think this is a really good thing.
0: It's a really interesting conversation, particularly at this point in time when we've got films like The Social Dilemma coming out and people becoming um, more uh, literate in the space of data collection What do you think the future holds? Do you think that we will get to a stage where people do have more right over their own data and can sort of withdraw or go invisible as as what you said?
1: Yeah, I think we are. And we're moving to that now. So when you think about My Health Record that we have here in Australia, so at the moment that's in a government repository, but we do have control over a big part of that data. So we are moving in that direction. I love doing these predictions. I think that's really fun. But I think we will move to that point in which, unfortunately, there probably has to be a few car crashes. And we have seen some major breaches. Um, We need deeper consequences. We need global harmonization. So until we can start moving towards a sense of global harmonization around legislation and regulation to do with data, then it's just going to be country by country and every man and woman for themselves. So I think there's a big leap we've got to take here in doing this. But I think anybody working in digital health now or med tech, if they're not thinking about the consequence of consent and the consequence around ownership and the individual's right around data, you're going to be blown out of the water because you're not developing a technology for the next 10 years. You're only developing a technology for the next couple of years.
2: And yeah. I certainly don't want to be invested in that kind of technology. So let's talk a little bit about risk, because I think specifically within the context of this podcast, women are perceived to be a bit more risk adverse than men and often go into business statistically with another woman rather than go it alone. So I have a couple of questions around that. The first obvious one, I want to hear it from you. Michelle, do you consider yourself a risk taker? Oh, yeah. Yep.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah, no, it's funny, you wouldn't have thought that when I was a teenager, you would have thought I was playing it very, very safe. I used to be the goalie in the hockey team, so I was definitely not the risk taker. But now, I don't know, there's something really wonderful that comes in your 40s and I can cheekily say now the 50s in that you don't really give a damn. So you sort of go, you know, I'm just going to go out there and do it, but I would love to see younger women taking smarter risks. And we don't talk about this enough, about what good risk taking is and I think too often I see women playing it just too safe. You know, it's okay. We've, we've got this amazing network of women. If you fall, it's okay. We're going to catch you. You know, this is where we need to sort of say, come on, let's just turn up the dial on confidence. Let's keep going and make sure you've got the capability and let's take a crack. So what's a good risk? You know, now that I've just said I'm a risk taker, so what what's on the good risk side of the ledger is actually quite a lot. I look, I think risk for me, a good risk is where you can grow and learn. So, people often say to me, "Why did you take on Opal when it was in such a distressed state?" This is the company that I'm in at the moment, an ASX listed company. Why did you take it on when it was in such a distressed state? I mean really? Are you crazy? But the biggest risk for me was not in failing. The, the risk on the positive side of the risk ledger was, oh, I had so much to learn. Mm. And it was such a great opportunity to take a shot. Sure, I'm afraid of failing and I don't want to, and I don't think I'm going to, but it was too big an opportunity to not take that risk. And then the second part was, I had really good ideas and I had really good people around me. I'm really well-educated, And I've got experience. So in terms of did I tick a lot of the boxes that would mitigate the risk? Hell yeah. So to me, a good risk, first of all, is are you going to learn and grow from the opportunity? That's a big one. It weighs heavily.
0: What's the biggest risk you wish you had taken?
1: I think the biggest risk I wish I had taken is probably travelling overseas at the end of my undergraduate degree and going with no money, no plan, and no one, just myself. So I wish I'd travelled on my own. I wish I'd taken the risk to go and explore the world. And I was, I was kind of scared at that age. And I was sort of a bit wedded to the idea of get my degree, get a good job. It was the 1990s, so it was that recession. So I was very much inspired by you need to get a job, you need to sort of secure your future you know, the future will always be there. My education was always going to be there, but you don't always have that opportunity to just throw it all to the wind and go travelling. So I wish I'd done that.
2: That's a good one. It's not always presented to you like that either, especially around a recession. Mm. There seems to be, a, you know, the the fear cloud mm, sits yeah. over the top of everything, like make sure you secure your future. Yeah, bunker Michelle, down, that sort of thing. That's mm. right, you know, and, you know, that's what your good old parents are really good at telling you, you know. <laughs> Um, Michelle, you talked a little bit about Opal and we've heard a bit about it in the introduction. But what I wanted to do was just have a quick chat about um, Opal. The headquarters are in Melbourne. You've got client service and development teams in Australia and in the US. And a lot of people don't know this, but it wasn't ASX listed when you started there, but it is ASX listed now. Can you give us an understanding of the size and the structure of Opal?
1: Yeah, no, it was ASX listed. Was it? Okay. I took it over, but it was a different name. It was called ShareRoot. That's and right. I, yeah. So, yeah, you would have changed that name too if you... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that could mean a lot of things. What sort of business are you running there? Oh, uh, People used to say, is it a swingers app? And I went, no. <laughs> <a> Oi." <lot. laughs> <No." laughs> maybe I could have made <laughs> a lot of money if it was, but no, yeah. no, that's not my thing. Um, What's the
2: application of that data collection? Good Lord.
1: Exactly. Yeah, no, this was a great idea from two guys that came out of California and, you know, the whole story. You can just see that whole story. But anyway, so... <laughs> When I took over the business, I had sold my business into ShareRoot and they were doing this. It was a rights management platform. So it's exactly what we've just been talking about. And I knew that the combination with social media needed to be artificial intelligence and machine learning. So it was a play to be able to move into that data analytics and predictive data space. So that's where I wanted to go. But when I took over the business, it was in significant distress at the time. So the share price was 0.001 of a cent. So it's a fraction of a cent. (laughs) I know I always visualise the little one cent coin and go it was point zero. And now, thankfully, it's trading at about 22 cents. So that's a really nice turnaround story. But it's been 15 months of cleaning the bloody house up. You know, (laughs) it was a big clean up job. But also, more importantly than that, it was a case of defining the strategy and narrowing the focus. So, to be really, really clear around what the target is and what's the problem we're trying to solve here. What are the tools on the table? Who's the customer? What are they prepared to pay? And that as a process was really exciting. That was Mm -hmm. really, really good fun. So, where we are now sort of 15 months, 16 months down the track is we're a clean company. We've got a clear strategy and we're actually solving problems. We're
0: going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a message from our partner, the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources. The Entrepreneurs' Programme can get you from where you are to where you want to be. Our team of independent business experts can help you bring your ideas and innovations to life. We've got the tools and the networks to get you on the way. And you may be eligible for funding to make it happen. To find out how the Entrepreneurs' Program can help you take your business to the next level, visit business.gov.au forward slash EP or call 13 46.
2: Future Women is dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. There's a price point to suit all budgets or talk to your company about a corporate training membership to advance your professional development. Just head to futurewomen.com.
0: Welcome back to Next Generation Innovators, where our guest today is Michelle Gallagher from Opal. Has COVID changed your direction, you know, from a business perspective, but also managing the company and people and culture? Has it shifted this year from what you would have expected it to be last year?
1: COVID is personally distressing as COVID is. So I lost my gorgeous uncle to COVID in the UK. I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. And he was an absolute light in our family. He was a wonderful man, but he had Parkinson's. So he was very vulnerable and he was in a particular hotspot in the UK. But as distressing as COVID is, there are going to be some companies that really can capture the opportunity that COVID offers. So And it's hard to talk about the potential positive impacts of COVID, but I think we need to because I think we need to highlight to people that there are opportunities out there in a crisis like this and that Australia can really capture a knowledge economy and they're ready to. We just have to unleash it in this space. So, yeah, for us, it's a bit of a game changer. So suddenly we saw doctors who there was probably about 19% of Australian doctors were using social media, And then we did another research project in late May and we found it was up to 26% of doctors. So they were using Twitter to capture information, clinical information in real time. They weren't waiting for papers to be published. They were going straight to Twitter and they were creating a community of practice around the world, whether it was initially doctors in Italy and Europe. And then it was doctors in the US and then it was doctors in Australia sharing their experience. So not just doctors, I mean all healthcare providers, nurses, allied health, administrators, everybody. So suddenly Twitter became one of the most important clinical tools during COVID. But also that we could track their potential outbreak of COVID using Twitter and artificial intelligence because people were reporting symptoms to Facebook or to Twitter. So that was an opportunity that I thought, that's a little tick on the risk side for us, that there's an opportunity right there. We should take a risk and continue to develop this platform. But the second one is the problem we're also trying to solve is around artificial intelligence and clinical trials. So clinical trials, normally it takes between, on average, about 8 to 12 years to develop a vaccine. Yeah, We don't have that long. So COVID has sped up that process. But what we really need to know is imagine if we could predict what the outcome of a clinical trial was going to be before we started. So typically it takes over a billion dollars to develop a new drug through clinical trials. We don't have that kind of money to burn. You know, that's a ridiculous amount of money. More than 98% of clinical trials fail. So you can see the problem right there is what if we could predict the outcomes of clinical trials, particularly the COVID vaccine trials and the COVID drug trials? What if we could predict the outcome before they started and not waste all of this money but also know which ones were going to come through and put all of our effort into those ones? So that's the problem we started to solve. And funny enough, we were starting to solve this problem probably around about this time last year. And then COVID Uh, happened, and as soon as that happened, we all kind of went, stop the train, hang on, we've got this amazing opportunity, let's stop everything else we're doing and throw it all into that. That's what I mean by risk-taking. So Mm. a smart risk is being able to look at the environment and say, here's COVID, so the big problem that governments want solved now is which vaccines are going to make it to the end. And so that's what we're trying to do.
2: When you think about the fact that it's a billion dollars, that is an amazing capability that you have there. And sorry, you said $0.22 cents a share? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. oh. <laughs> it's, it's, if you look at
1: the share price over the last few weeks, it's, it's kind of satisfying. I keep trying not to look mm. at it because you should never measure your success by the share price.
0: What do you see as the biggest threat then to your business going forward?
1: Great question. I think you're a shareholder, Brooke.
0: <laughs> this is the AGM
2: yeah, but I am this is well, the I will, AGM if I'm <laughs> the not now yeah. as soon
0: as this podcast is over I will be because Before I'm we am getting in startup. on the ground
1: floor here I think there's a couple of really big risks here I think there is the I don't care risk that I don't really care I don't care about predicting the outcome so our business has the potential to make this whole industry very very uncomfortable there's going to be a lot of people that hear about this technology and go i'm a clinical trial designer i know what works i don't need Mm. a machine so business as usual the status quo and i guess and i'm going to be cheeky here the arrogance of humans is probably our greatest risk and i think a lot of people in ai would say that about their technologies and i say this our technology is not going to take the place of people's jobs it's going to augment decision making So it means too that there's going to be discomfort because it's going to identify clinical trials with a very low chance of success. And that means they may not get funded and those medical researchers may not get funded and those small biotechs won't get funded. And it might mean a real change in the way that we fund research. So there's going to be some discomfort there. There's also going to be some discomfort around the regulators. Do they trust a little company like us? You know, who are we? We're just some tiny weeny little micro cap in Melbourne, in Australia. So why would they trust us? So there's some credibility issues there. I'm afraid of not taking the risk. I'm afraid of not making it work.
2: So I'm afraid of you of, not taking the risk. Uh, yeah, me too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm afraid of missing out. So I have FOMO on a grand scale. One of our biggest problems, though, Brooke, and you sort of pressed on a big bruise here, is we're a tiny weenie company with not a lot of money in the bank. So we've got to make this solution happen. We've only got about six months worth of cash. So if we don't make it happen in weeks and months bang, you know, we're out of business. So for us, we have to generate revenue really quickly from our idea to ensure that we're financially sustainable. But at the same time, we have to think on a grand scale. We've got to think on a global scale, not an Australian scale. And, you know, that's kind of hard to do when you're way down under in a tiny, weenie little company with not a lot of cash reserves.
2: Mm. Something you said before really reminded me of a question that I had because where you were talking about these predictions taking large bodies of work that people are doing that don't have a great chance of success but they can't see it and and really pointing those resources towards an area where they may have more success, the efficiency gremlin in me wakes up and goes, yes, yes, that's what you need to be doing. So my question to you then is do you see down the track us becoming far, far more efficient in this area far more cost effective, moving away from your business as usual where from the process that you've described as it stands is is relatively laborious and there's a lot of question marks associated at lots of different stages. Do you see this COVID time wiping the slate slightly and killing that business as usual, allowing some fresh ideas to creep in there around efficiencies and around tightening this whole process up?
1: Yeah, I do, and that's a really insightful comment because there's a couple of things COVID's going to do. It's going to reduce the amount of money on offer for medical research. So instead, and it's right, we have to channel a lot of money in Australia into social networks and welfare because there's Mm -hmm. going to be a lot of people out of jobs. We've got to rebuild an economy. So, yes, a knowledge economy is what we need to go towards to be able to survive a significant recession like this. And that's true. But it means we need to be more resourceful and we need to be more efficient with what we're doing. So I think that's what we can bring to the table. I think there's going to be a lot of companies and a lot of technology ideas that are going to be focused around operational efficiency, about doing more with less. It's been a global megatrend for years you know, that a lot of the predictive people out there have been talking about, we've got to do more with less. I think it also comes to the United Nations Sustainability Development Goals, Mm. you know, which there's 17 goals, and I absolutely love this. So if people aren't familiar with the SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, it's not just about environment, and it's not just about equality or access to justice. It's also about doing more with less and being more efficient with the resources that we have on Earth. So I think, yeah, we have to be far more efficient. And I think too, smashing and disrupting some of the funding models that we have I think would be a very good thing because I don't genuinely believe that the best ideas get funded all of the time. Mm. So I'm all for smashing the system.
0: Smash it up, she says. Yeah, yeah. So you're at the forefront of so many of these ideas as we've heard so often, every day, multiple times a day, in unprecedented times. Who do you look for to guidance? Like, do you have mentors who've helped you get your career to where it is now, but also who you can bounce things off because these times are so difficult and, and moving so quickly?
1: Yeah, I've got some great mentors. I'm the daughter of a feminist father. And so he's been wonderful. He worked in the mining and engineering industry and then realised that mining was not the future he wanted to be part of. So he went into food and pharmaceutical manufacturing. So he, he was about food and medicine. He's a great mentor for me in terms of ethics and that guidance around the moral responsibility that technology developers have to be mindful of unintended consequences. And just because you can, doesn't mean you should. And so that's a wonderful thing. I have an amazing young woman that she tells me I'm her mentor, but actually secretly she's mine. She just doesn't really know it. Um, But she's introducing me to a lot of current thinking of somebody in her early thirties, who's very, very ambitious and very, very smart around data and data analytics so she's great I think for me too I've got an 18 and a 20 year old so my son is 20 he's studying journalism and he's an amazing thinker and deeply deeply respect his passion for telling the truth and to getting to the heart of something and my daughter she has a future in the creative industries and I love the diversity of this as well so that's kind of exciting it's a really interesting space to be in. And for me personally, I think I'm just hitting my straps. This is like the best time in my whole career right now. It's just completely awesome. And I wish I knew then what I know now, but then I kind of would have been running the universe by now. So maybe that would have been <laughs> a bad thing. <laughs> I love you so much. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> that was just like,
0: I felt like I was going to cry just there when oh, you said that. Oh, get out. You like, did this not. this is the best yeah. time in my career. and Yeah, you don't hear that I, enough. No, you don't. You absolutely See, don't. See, I can
1: say that. See, I'm a bit older than you too, so I am I'm, i don't make a secret of it. I'm 53 and I rock. And just, but just, you know, that, that, it's Michelle, such it's, a great age.
0: It's so funny because people always say, I'm 33, and people always say like, oh, you know, you're just, you know, you're at the peak or you know you're at your best or whatever and it's so so wonderful to hear someone say no actually you know what there's plenty more time and you know I'm two decades older than you and I'm killing it
1: yeah yeah and it's funny because I said this to someone the other day that um, I walk with this amazing girlfriend we egg each other on something shocking so she's about the same age and when it comes to taking risks, you know, that's the beauty of this time in your life. Like when I started my own business, I was 47. I come from a family of entrepreneurs and my mum said, oh, my God, you got rocks in your head. Oh, what were you thinking? And my dad said, what took you so long? You know, so yeah. but there's a wonderful thing that comes when you're a little bit older, as a man or a woman, but particularly as a woman, where you just have this sassy confidence that it's kind of like, "Yeah, take me on. Yeah, yeah. we'll see how we go." <laughs> you, know, you, you kind of done. You've done a lot of the hard stuff in life. You know, you've dealt with relationships, you've dealt with money, you've dealt with health issues. You're looking after kids, and sometimes you're looking after parents, or or you've made choices not to have kids, and you're rocking that choice too. So there's a beautiful freedom that just comes and it's an intellectual as well as an emotional freedom that comes, I think, in your late 40s and 50s and I think it's an exceptionally good value time to start a business and just take a risk, back yourself.
2: I get what Brooke's saying. It's bloody refreshing and it's really, really nice to hear a woman confident in her stride but also talk herself up without sounding like a wanker if I might say that. It's
1: about rocking your own ambition. I'm a really ambitious woman.
2: You, I you are. Not, and and I, I, think, I. Like, I've got a lot,
1: but I want more. I want more and more, and I want more, and I want more for you, too. Mm. But we often don't use this language with women. And that was my point about risk taking. We talk about men as being risk takers, ambitious, mm. courageous, brave. But we're risk takers, we're courageous, we're really, really brave. Why, why don't we put the same sort of labels on women? We don't even talk about ourselves in this. And we often talk about women as, oh, she's a safe pair of hands in this business. This is what was said about me when I took over Opal. Oh, she's a safe pair of hands. She's run a business. She knows what it's like to do payroll and bootstrap and all the rest of it. That's oh, a last thing. I don't want to be remembered yeah, as a safe doing pair doing
2: of hands. You doing payroll is not where, you know, your talents are best spent.
1: No, I don't want to be Amazing. that person. I don't want people to say, oh, she really knew her stuff. She was a really safe pair of hands. She made some good, solid decisions. I want people to go oh, she scared the crap out of me sometimes. And she's yeah. <laughs> don't yeah. you want to be that woman? Yeah, yeah, you? she's a wild card. I bet card. you do. I know you do, card. Alicia. I bet you do too, Brooke. Yeah. But yeah, I want people to go, she's a wild card and she screwed it up every now and then, but she picked herself up and off she kept on going and she had confidence in herself and she shared the confidence with other people. I want people to remember me. I'm sounding like I'm writing my own epitaph, but I want people to actually look back and go, she was smart at taking risks and the risks that she took, they didn't all pan out, but, geez, some of them were crackers and she did really
2: well. I can't run the risk of embarrassing you because you're too cool for that, but that little uh, comment that you made in there, I've started my own business at 47, I think it's important for people to know that business that you kind of just flippantly mentioned there was what you won the Victorian Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Award for, which we don't have time to get into because I, I want to ask you a really quick question about women in STEM. And I want to ask you specifically, Michelle, you're very straightforward. You know, you never give an answer that's a stock standard. You give the answer that you really think. And so you're the co-founder of Women in STEM Australia. That's a not-for-profit that advocates for representation of women in STEM leadership roles. We've been talking about STEM, I feel, now in a general sort of vernacular for quite some time. How do you feel we're going with advocating and getting women into STEM roles? How are we tracking rubbish okay Hmm.
1: no it is rubbish i was recently invited into the chief executive women have just done a as they do the asx top 200 survey and we're in worse shape now than we've ever been so since that census began our data now about women in the top 200 asx listed companies is the worst it's ever been and Why so this is, that? is appalling. Well, I think it's a it's a number of reasons, but a big one is because women aren't typically in the feeder roles that feed up into the ASX, which are typically CFO. You find yeah. a lot more women in legal, HR, marketing. We're not seeing enough women in tech, and some of the tech roles get up into those CEO roles, but yeah. also we're not choosing women. So we're not actively working to find the value this is not a merit-based system when it comes to leadership but particularly in stem there's a number of industry groups as well as academic groups have looked at the stem field in australia and we're starting to see a little bit of change we've got things like the athena swan program or sage which is particularly for academic women we don't have anything sort of equivalent for women in industry But also, we have as many women as men coming into the undergraduate areas in STEM, but they're not coming out the other end. And a big part of it is around we lose women at the middle of the pipeline around STEM. And that's because of family pressures. The science and technology industry is very much focused on academic output of papers being published. So it's a very linear career yep. model so women in industry do a whole lot better than women in academia in a lot of those areas but still in some critical areas like engineering we've not got nearly enough women in this country in engineering yet china it's like 40 percent are women so there's something around the psyche of this i think actually and i'm going to be really cheeky here i think mothers are a big reason for this and we should take the blame So this is where, and I did this, this is where kids come to you and say, Mum, can you help me with my maths homework? And Mum goes, oh, I'm really crap at maths. Go ask your dad. This is really wrong. So I was guilty of this. So I'm not bad at maths but my partner is in IT and he's very, very good at maths. But the message that sends to kids is that girls aren't good at maths. And so, and we're seeing this in Laplan results. You know, I've got a boy and a girl who both behaved exactly like that my daughter thinks she's rubbish at maths and my son thinks he's quite competent but in fact the facts are the other way around my daughter Mm -hmm. is actually far more competent at maths than my son but my son is very confident so the way that women talk about maths and science and engineering to kids is often to defer to men and we don't do this consciously we do it subconsciously so I think you know there's a big narrative that needs to change around how women problem solve and how women use technology and maths principles, because we don't readily identify with that, particularly in Australia. Uh, there's, mm. there's so many reasons for this sort of outcome, and I'm going to get on a tangent here. But my hat goes off to teachers in primary school who love maths. They're, they're my people.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I'd just like to ask you the same question that we ask all of our guests at the end of the interview, which is what advice do you have for listeners who have a great business idea and they're thinking about taking that leap and making it happen?
1: I think the first bit of advice I have is to write it down. Just write it down. So often, and I've done this, you think of these things when you're walking the dog or you're swimming or whatever it is, and you think, 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 and then one day somebody starts a business and they've got a product on market or a service and you go, oh, I thought of that back in 2000. <sighs> I've done yeah. that so much. Oh, I, yeah, oh. we've all done this. We've all done. So the fact is there's a good, like they say it about a book, there's a good book in everyone, there's a good business in everyone. Yep. There is. There genuinely is. And then my second bit of advice is look for investors. Don't think you need to fund this yourself. It's a good idea. People want to get in on the action. Let them. You know, it's okay. It's better to have a business where you own 70% of it rather than no business where you you, you don't own any of it. But, yeah, writing it down is the first step. And I used to just think and think and think and never write it down.
2: Michelle gallagher on behalf of Brooke and I, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. Thanks for talking about the future. Thanks for making COVID look a bit brighter. And thanks for waking up the efficiency gremlin uh, and letting her come out to play. We're just so pleased to have you. Thank you so very much.
1: Oh, you're very you are welcome. I'm very honoured to be asked.
0: Thanks for listening. Next Generation Innovators is a Future Women podcast made in partnership with the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources Entrepreneurs Program. And it's produced by Fancy Films. Join us again next week and make sure you subscribe so that you never miss an episode. And we'd love it if you could share, rate and review the podcast as it really does help people find us. See you then.